0: Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. A discussion on the doctrine of the Logos, the perfect Logos, and the seminal Logos.
1: Um, Yeah, so let's back up to, you know what, yeah, go ahead and do a recap on yesterday on the Logos. What we were discussing is the original idea of the Logos, and then how it was kind of used by others, and then how it was then, I, I use the term hijacked, but appropriated by the Christians, and we kind of, Uh, fed some new meaning and expansion into the idea and embraced it and how this really became a cornerstone of our Christology. So Daniel, why don't you start kind of at the beginning historically and then kind of give us the points at which this Logos was, you know, what its role was and then at what point it became what it became in Christian theology.
0: So I did that on what, 20 minutes yesterday? Because I don't want to take longer. I,
1: no, I think it took hours, but go ahead. No, it was 25
0: <laughs> minutes. It was, um, um, so, okay, so the word logos, we have to start with what the word actually means. Um, it can't really be translated into English because it has so many different concepts that we divide into different words. But with Greek, it's all at once. So some of those concepts include um, speech but speech insofar as it's the result of um, reasoning. So logos also means reason. When they translated the word logos into Latin, it's ratio, which is rationality. Um, So reason, speech, uh, reasoning, logic. The word logic comes from the word logos. Um, If you have words like biology, theology, it's the logos of life, the logos of God, the, the discourse, reasoning. About these topics so ology also comes from the word logos the first thinker in Greece to use this word in a way to describe um, his philosophy is someone called Heraclitus the dark one he lived about six centuries before Christ he was from the city of Ephesus and up until that time philosophy was trying to find the ultimate material or the ultimate foundation for the universe So some have thought that water was the foundation of all the universe. Everything's made out of water. Others said uh, air. Others said um, what's called the unbound. Then Heraclitus came and said it was fire, but fire with the logos. The logos being this principle, this ultimate principle that organizes everything so that, you know, we have matter, but at the same time that logos organizes everything to take some type of order. Then after Heraclitus came up with that philosophy, there was another philosopher, not quite the Logos, but something similar. He identified this idea of nous, nous being mind. Nous in Greek means the intellectual mind. Um, He said this was the principle of the entire universe, but he never developed the idea. And that got a lot of philosophers after him upset. Why not? Because there's just so much there. Um, The mind is the foundation of all reality. After him, Plato, uh, probably the greatest philosopher of all time, came in and said that you have nature, it's eternal, but you also have God who's eternal. And that God, notice it's a different God than our God, but he believed there was this one God who was like a shaper of the universe. He shaped everything um, that was already there and gave it order. He said that that God had a logos through which he shaped the world logos meaning a mind a rationality logic but we also have a rational mind that reflects his mind and this is where a lot of people think that plato read for for the jewish scriptures because this is exactly the idea of the image of god in judaism that our rational minds reflect the mind of god it's a reflection it's an image eventually more philosophies came after him. Aristotle developed his own philosophy. He didn't really have a part for the logos other than human thinking, human reasoning, but no logos as a universal one. Um, Following him, another philosophy rose up called stoicism. Stoicism also came up with this idea of the logos, but stoicism, unlike Plato, unlike Heraclitus, saw that everything is God. So the whole universe is God. And, the, the universe is the body of God. If you are familiar with any type of religious thinking, this is called pantheism. Everything is God. And they were very materialists. Um, um, they did not believe in a soul. They did not believe in an afterlife. You are part of God. And when you die, you become part of God's uh, cosmic body. But they also developed this idea of the logos as the organizing principle of the universe. But at the same time, that principle was seated like little seeds in everything in nature. That's why we see order in nature, that everything has a seed of the logos. Um, um, you may hear me referring to it later as the seminal logos because seminalis in Latin means um, seeds. So they said that was the nature of the logos in the universe. Is he God? Well, sure, but everything else is God too. So there's no distinction, but they do identify a principle that exists in the universe And its different aspects in us, and that leads to development. Then, fast forward now, first century AD, you've got Jews who have read for philosophers. They're trying to formulate their own philosophy. You have Christianity at the same time. A Jew in Alexandria named Philo of Alexandria used the word logos to describe this very ancient idea in Judaism, which is the wisdom of God. If you go back to the book of Proverbs, you'll see that there's this idea of the wisdom of God as almost a personal force, like this is a personal being, but it is in God. Well, in Proverbs, they use the feminine, so she, wisdom, she has built her house, and in her house are seven pillars. But very early on, the Jews identified this as not simply a characteristic, but it's something almost distinct from God, not different, but distinct. Philo used the word Logos to describe this idea and developed it along the lines of um, the Logos God creates through the Logos. The Logos is God's mind, um, but also the Logos has the plan for all of reality before it comes to be in him. When you go now to the Gospel of John, John uses the word Logos. That's where we know the term. In the beginning there was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Up until John, the Logos was a sort of intermediary force or an impersonal force. With John, he's on the same level as God. That's why he says he's with God. So that's the wisdom of God in the Old Testament, but he is God. And what may not be appreciated in, in the Gospel of John is in English, it seems like it's, you know, it's it's a creation account. But what, re- what it really is, it's a commentary on Genesis chapter 1. The language, if you read the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, and then you read the Greek of John chapter 1, it is almost the same terminology all over. So when it says all things were made through him, it's not they were made through him. The languages came into being through him. So unlike Plato's logos, who shapes what's already there, this Logos brings everything into existence, so he's the creator. Now, there's an interesting point to make here. There's a background. The background was, an, was a heresy called the Gnostic heresy. The Gnostic heresy had taught that the creator of the physical world is a different God from the creator of our souls. So they had this idea that there's this one ultimate God called the Father, and he's given birth to generations of gods, usually about 30 gods, And one of those gods, called the Demiurge, he's the one who created the physical world. But because he's not the highest god, that world's imperfect. Now, John is challenging this because it had become an issue even uh, 30 years before he wrote his gospel. Paul combated this heresy in his uh, epistle to the Colossians. If you're interested, I have an episode on my podcast called The Spirituality of Context where I cover Paul and John in more detail. You can find that on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Google Play. It's called The Mind of the Early Church, and it's one of the earliest episodes I have on there.
2: And what's the, the specific episode name, sorry?
0: The Spirituality of Context. Thank you. So John challenges the Gnostic thinking by using the term only begotten. Um And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, The Gnostics also use the term fullness to describe all these gods. Um, That's why Paul says, and in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Now, the body was evil to Gnostics. The spirit was good. For Paul to say something like that, he's breaking down their whole system. Um, John takes it up and says, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. So John sets up that the Logos is God. He's distinct from the Father, but he's not different from him. That's why he says he was with God. In in the Greek and in the Latin and even in the Arabic, the word for with doesn't mean standing beside. It's like something like I possess it in my head, like um, in Arabic it's and. Which means it was um, He had it This is his He possesses this It's something Yeah So um, We don't use that term to say You know I'm hanging out with all you guys today We don't say and in Arabic Um, So it's the idea that The Logos is something that God has possession of It's his It's his attribute So there's a distinction between the Logos And the Father But there's no difference like, there's a distinction in the sun between its heat and its light, but you take one away, it ceases to be a sun. Um, you know, you take the heat away from the sun, it's light. You take the light away from the sun, it's heat. But you put them together, you have the sun.
1: Um, Claudia and Melissa, are you guys kind of tracking? Or is he? This is getting into some complex stuff. And Tanner, yeah. Yeah. yeah this is. Daniel, can I pause you for just a moment? Yeah. So what I want to do, um, so you kind of get a picture of what he's talking about. This Philo uh, was seeing this same concept of logos in the Jewish scriptures, in what was the wisdom. So where, you know, in Proverbs, he talked about the wisdom of God. He saw this is personified. This is like a person and, and saw this is the same of the, it's the logos. What I'd like to do is just read a quick chapter of Proverbs. And so you can kind of get the picture, you know, tangibly of what he's saying. When I go through this proverb, when I see the word wisdom, I'm going to replace it with Christ. So the person of Christ. And I'm going to change because he referred to wisdom as feminine as her. I'm going to change it to him. So we're going to see if we put Christ into this passage, what does this passage look like? And I think this will kind of help you guys to see the picture he's talking about. Okay. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the side of my mother, he also taught me and said to me. Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get Christ. Get understanding. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake him, and he will preserve you. Love him, and he will keep you. Christ is the principal thing. Therefore, get Christ. And in all your getting, get understanding. Exalt him, and he will promote you, and he will bring you honor when you embrace him. He will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory. He will deliver to you. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of Christ. I have led you in right paths when you walk your steps will not be hindered and when you run you will not stumble take firm hold of instruction and do not let go keep him for he is your life do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil avoid it and do not travel in it turn away from it and pass on For they do not sleep unless they have done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines even brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all of your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. So here I think is just a good tangible way to see what he was talking about when this Philo read this and he saw the logos, a person, a personification, and this matched the Greek concept of a logos. And we took that and said, yes, and that person has a name. And he was born and became flesh in you know, in, Nazareth, in Nazareth, and this is the Christ. So this is when he talks about that personification. We're reading something written centuries before Christ came, and we understand this being fulfilled in Christ. This is Christ they were talking about. Okay, go on. Sorry for that.
0: And then that leads us to the attributes of the logos. What is it that the logos has that we have? And it's pretty much the light to understand both nature and the way things work, and also morality. It's both, it's not either or, it's both at the same time. So when we see, for example, a plant growing, and we can understand what led it to grow, it's using sunlight, it's using water but we also understand what makes for a good plant. There's the moral aspect, it has to be taken care of. Then when we apply that to our lives, we we start to perceive morality. And this is why in orthodoxy, we don't believe that um, people, if they are not Christians, they don't have a morality, we do. We believe they have a morality because that's part of the image of God, the logos that is in their minds. So moving forward to the next century, there becomes a distinction uh, St. Justin Martyr uses again that word seminal Logos, the seed Logos. That's the Logos we have here as human beings. And it develops over time to reflect the perfect Logos, who is Christ. So the perfect Logos is Christ, the complete Logos, and we're the seed Logos that grows to resemble Christ. And that happens by the effective use of our reasoning to follow him. Um, that's, I mean, this is a big topic. I know I can't, I thought we were going to cover it in 20 minutes. There's no way now. Somebody yesterday was saying you need an hour on each era of the logos for the, the pre-Socratic philosophers, for the Stoics, for Philo, then for um, um, the Christian understanding of the logos. Um, so the idea is that Christ is that logos and we were created after his image. And we reflect that image because we're able to understand, we're able to use our logic to manage the world. Um, So there's a great book called On the Incarnation of the Word, the Word being the Logos, so The Incarnation of the Word by St. Athanasius. But most people don't know that that's part two to a two-part work. Part one is extremely important for setting up the whole context for what St. Athanasius is trying to say. That first book is called Against the Heathen in English, Um, You often see it referred to by its Latin title, Contragentes, and he sets up who the Logos is. What is it that the Logos is? What does he do? What's his relationship to nature and to us? Then after he set all that up, he starts part two, which is the incarnation of the Logos. Um, And if you guys watching are interested, Tilo on his channel, I believe it's called Tilo's Theology Service, Uh, He and I, we recorded three episodes on, or sorry, maybe two. I can't remember. Two or three episodes on um, Contragentes, that first part. Then on the incarnation of the word up until um, midway through the book. Um, The rest of the book was objections to Jews and Gentiles. um, um, But for whatever reason, we didn't pick up after that. Um, So if you're interested, that part one on his channel discusses the book against the heathen. And it's very important because St. Athanasius really develops that idea of the logos and what we mean by it. But it's the idea that Christ is in all of the universe and he moves everything and sustains everything and brings it to its completion. Um, in, In ancient philosophy and in science up until the 1600s, and again, it's making a comeback, there's this idea of what's known as a final cause. Final cause meaning purpose. It sounds like final cause, or oh, what, that's the last cause? No, it means purpose. And the idea is that before anything comes to be, its purpose has to set, be set beforehand. And if you look at everything in the world, especially in the, in the biological sphere in life, everything tends toward a purpose. Indeed, like you can't even describe the organs of the body if you don't describe their purposes. I mean, can you imagine trying to explain a lung or a brain? Everything in the world. I right, thank you. So there's this idea that um, if you look at nature, I mean, try, try this experiment with yourselves at home. Try describing a brain without recourse to purpose. Then tell me how far you get. I mean, it'll be the same explanation as a hose without explaining the hose's purpose. <laughs> it's like, if, so the idea that we see everything tends toward an end purpose in life and even in the universe. You know, you look at the water cycle, it's end-oriented. Why does it evaporate? So it can condense. Why does it condense? So it can precipitate and so forth. This, everything tending toward an end purpose is the management of the logos In the universe, he's holding everything together and bringing it toward an end. And not only that, but when everything comes to its end, all together they make this one big symphony, so to say. And I think he uses the, I think, I'm not sure, I think he uses the example of a conductor to a musical, uh, an orchestra or a choir in his book in that first part against the heathen. Um, So the idea is that this is the Logos. He holds everything together. He manages it. He brings it to its purpose. But then how do we reflect that? We reflect that because we could recognize the purpose. Um, If I'm not mistaken, most animals can't recognize any type of purpose.
1: They only... Hey, um, there's a a comment here from Peter. Uh, Would this final cause be the same as the telos?
0: Yes, exactly. That's the word that the philosophers used. So the telos of a thing, yeah. Um, but then you go further. You see all these different things have different uh, teloi. Then they're brought together as a whole, and they work together. And that's also part of the logos. He's the one who sustains everything. Now, how do we reflect that? We reflect that because we're able to recognize the purpose of a thing by observing it. Because our minds reflect the same mind who set the purpose. So we have the logos. Now, for us as rational beings because we're the only creature, the only animal that has a rational mind, we also have a moral dimension because we can step out of the whole thing and make decisions. Animals don't step outside of the cause effect cycle and make decisions. They react, they flee, they fight, they feed um, based on stimuli that they have in nature. Even if you look at like migratory birds and uh, sea creatures, for example, people think that this is predetermined, but they actually follow the temperature of the ocean and the air you know, in in the winter, the sun's path across the sky moves further and further south and becomes shorter. They follow the sun's path because of the heat, and that leads them down south. We as humans can step out of that whole cycle of cause and effect, consider it, and come up with a list of possibilities that we might want to act upon. And for that reason, some actions become better than others, some are more appropriate than others, and that's the moral dimension of the Logos. So we also have the ability to perceive virtue and over time, this way of looking at morality became known as natural law where we know how things tend toward an end. So we can make a determination of what's good and what's bad. For example, we know that we need to eat. We have the urge. We know that's the end of the urge to eat food. But if we decide, To act on that urge by overeating, and we know other people need to eat, and we eat what's theirs, that becomes a form of evil, evil doing. So where the impulse is good, it's how we choose to actualize it that becomes bad. Um, And we know that others have to eat. We know others are equal to us because they also possess the same rationality. And if we take away what's theirs, then that becomes two sins, greed and gluttony. And those virtues, those vices, they were identified. They've been identified in, in all cultures before religion ever made a, uh, um, came onto the scene. Now, how then does religion, um, Christianity, relate to morals? It actually gives a framework to be able to understand morality. Not so much as, here's what you should do, follow it, be a good boy, habibi, be a good girl, habibti. No, it transcends even that. It's an all-encompassing picture of what it means to be human, what it means to know, how we know what the nature of the world is, including morality. Um, and it's interesting because the natural law understanding of morality is probably the most powerful ethical theory we can come up with. Others think um, ethics a social contract, for example, that we agree on what we want to do. Well, at the end of the day, people will even disagree about how we went about actualizing the contract others think that morality is the agreement of a society on how to behave well how come then some people raise objections to how we're behaving in society and we can't agree on it because it's the natural law working within us we know that there are certain things that we have been created to have they are our so quote unquote natural rights like food like clothing like shelter like freedom um like being able to um, have what's mine to be to have something proper to me property. Um, and it develops from that point on. So it's that's the logos. it's It's this dimension of understanding the world and understanding how we should act in it. But understanding how we should act in it can never translate to actually doing the act. That requires a hierarchy of values, a structure of values.
1: If, for example, I think it's important to bring in here the, the difference between the existence of this perfect moral right and our interpretation of it. I, I think that people get confused between those two, that whether there is this actual morally right, and then us here, where we have multiple conflicting needs and desires, actually interpreting that so whether it exists as a reality the perfect moral right versus us trying to ascertain what it is
0: so what's interesting about that then there comes up this word repeats over and over again in the greek fathers imitation and actually in the latin too um imitation so we have these desires that are oriented toward an end How we actualize those desires and when, and this is very important too, when we actualize those desires, that becomes moral right and wrong. We can only get that by imitation. And that's where Christ comes in. That's why the Logos becomes incarnate, because when he takes a body that's his own and the way he lives in that body, it provides the exemplar that we must follow. And it can only come by imitation. It can't come by. Here's a list of virtues that you need to work on. Go work on humility today. We're going to work on um, frugality tomorrow, and so on. It has to come by imitation, and that's why you find
2: very simple people. Have you? Have, sorry to interrupt. Have you uh, read uh, René Girard's book on mimetic, uh, mimetic desire and imitation, and all of that?
0: No, so I've read for Girard one book called "I See Satan Fall Like Lightning," where he does discuss those concepts. Yes. Uh, What's the genius about Gerard is that he takes these observations by the church fathers and engages them with modern anthropology. And in the process, I would argue that he may have found the unifying explanation for all social sciences
2: Mm -hmm. because
0: it it transcends. It goes into psychology. It goes into sociology, anthropology. uh, Even goes into economics. Economics oh. functions on imitation. You know, this guy's wearing Vans. I want to buy Vans too. Everyone's wearing Vans now,
1: and it's. Peter, by- why don't you go into what, um, where you're seeing these connecting?
2: Um, well, just what based on what Daniel was saying, that um, these are desires that we have, and it, it's not enough to just tell somebody, "Hey, here's frugality. Uh, follow these instructions on your own, and you've got it done." Gerard tells us that is that all desire is mimetic, meaning it's, it's based on mimicry. So if I see you doing imitation. something or imitation, yeah. Uh, so if I see you uh, desiring something, I want to desire that as well. But then he differentiates between two types of imitation. There's the external externally mediated imitation and internally mediated uh, uh, imitation. And the difference between these two is that the externally mediated imitation is the type of open imitation that's admir- like that's made of admiration, where the two people who are imitating each other or one who's imitating the other are not in competition or in rivalry. So for example, a father and a son, and the son sees his dad wearing the lawyer's coat and all that kind of stuff, and he starts to imitate his father. There's no rivalry there, and he knows that he's never going to beat his father, but there's this sort of imitation. Where on the other hand, internally immediate imitation is the one that's not open like that. And it's two people like students, for example, that are competing with each other. One wants to get a higher grade than the other. The one never tells the other, you're better than me and I want to be like you. There's always this hidden aspect to it. And so I think, for example, uh, Gerard talks about how Satan uses imitation in the negative internally mediated sense. I don't want go to go too off course from what, where Daniel was going with this, but you have Satan. No, This is actually interesting because um,
0: he didn't distinguish those two types of imitation in his book that I read. Mm-hmm. and this now makes a lot of sense because i was about to address the the imitation by admiration this was- is
2: his his book his like magnus opus oh yeah in, yeah, yeah things hit him it, from the foundation it's yeah. an excellent book uh but basically how did so you, like,
0: curiosity how did you come by gerard
2: <laughs> i follow this guy on youtube called jonathan Pajot, and uh, oh he, yeah 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 He was interviewing someone a while ago and he brought him up and it was just fascinating to hear about him. So I just looked him up and then that's what was basically a rabbit hole from there. But um, so, yeah, he, he says internally mediated, externally mediated. Satan is the embodiment of mimetic rivalry gone, or it's just mimetic rivalry. God's way of imitation is never mimetic, is never rivalrous. It's open and it's always infinite. God is always infinitely more than we are. And the closer that we get to him, the more we realize we're infinitely far away from him. So we actually become more humble as we progress on the journey towards imitating God. Whereas Satan, on the other hand, is uh, he always uses rivalry because he's the prince of pride. And if you look even in the Garden of Eden, where you have at the beginning, um, the tree of life, and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life is where communion of God uh, culminates. And it's there where we are partaking of communion with God and we're following him and growing in the image and likeness which we are created in. So that we're actually growing in imitation of God and becoming more and more of his image and likeness. Whereas Satan is mimetically rivalrous and he's in competition with God. Though God is not in competition with him, he is in competition with God. He wants to say, I want to be like God. And his mimetic rivalry causes him to fall further down. And so when he comes to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he's already trying to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve and God putting the rivalry. He says, he doesn't want you to eat from this tree because the moment that you eat from this tree, you're going to be like him. And it's a counterfeit. It's always a lie because he tries to offer you what you already have. We're already made in the image and likeness. And he, he, he acts as if God doesn't want us to imitate and share in his goodness. He wants. He thinks that God doesn't want these things from us. So he, so Satan offers it as a rivalist. Do this, and you'll be like him. But you're also separating from him at the same time. So it's a contradiction, and that's. Yeah.
0: And it, and but, it, yeah, um, and it leads to a point where they focus everything on a scapegoat, whether yeah. a group, a group of people, or a person. And when they kill that scapegoat or cast them out, the problems that arise from rivalry disappear. So that way, Satan places his grasp on humanity. Exactly. And Jesus reverses that. And this is interesting. This is where it really gets interesting. And you see the, the, how he's reformulating the ancient church's way of thinking about salvation. That when Christ reverses that process, because if you're all listening, you probably say, oh, Christ did that. He took all the sins on himself and um, cast it out when he was cast out. But what he does is a reversal. He undermines the whole structure and brings it to an end because instead of Satan placing his grasp on humanity, the church now comes to be and they're no longer afraid of the world. They're willing to die for it and the faith spreads. And that's the idea of the victory of Christ that St. Athanasius mentions in his book on the Incarnation, mm-hmm. that Christ has overcome the powers of sin, death, and evil. Um, but yeah, that's, um, I was going to add to it. So that to add to that um, imitation, so we imitate Christ to get the right way of living. Um, even very early, even in the second century, they talk about the imitation. So in the martyrdom of Polycarp, um, there's a comment that's made um, at the end. So it says the Jews had asked the magistrate, this is in um, the martyrdom of Polycarp chapter 17, if you all want to pull it up later, chapter 17 of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Um, the Jews had asked the magistrate to hand over the body of Polycarp, which had been burned. It was not like burned to ashes yet. And then they told the magistrate, or else they may abandon the crucified one and begin to worship this man, who even watched when we were about to take the body from the fire. Then the writer of the martyrdom explains, they did not know that we will never be able either to abandon the Christ who suffered the salvation of the whole world, of those who are saved, the blameless on behalf of sinners, or to worship anyone else, for we worship this one, who's the Son of God. But the martyrs we love as disciples and imitators of the Lord, as they deserve on account of their matchless devotion to their own king and uh, teacher, may we also become their partners and fellow disciples." And I was actually describing this to my own Sunday school students and I teach sixth grade. So like they were able to follow this, but I told them, do we imitate those we love? And some of them didn't want to answer the question. And I said, how many of you like the things your parents like? And most of them raised their hands, You know, whether it's hockey, whether it's, it's uh, um, basketball, soccer, working with wood, writing, poetry. Um, movies they got these from their parents the desires and it's because they love their parents and what we love we end up imitating naturally that's why you even see husbands and wives they start to take from each other because they start to imitate what they love in the other person or the person that they love they become like so if they're very argumentative you both become argumentative if they're very spiritual both start becoming spiritual or it leads to a a rivalry. On the other hand, (laughs) Um, it could go either way. So, you know, um, but if there's real love, it becomes an imitation of admiration, not an imitation of rivalry. Mm -hmm. Um, If you love yourself more than the spouse, it becomes a rivalry. Um, But yeah, so that's how we reflect the logos, how we live our lives. So it's a Christ centered morality. Um, That way, you cannot cannot recapitulate Christian morality without Christ. Maybe you can be a nice person. (laughs) Maybe you can get along with people at work, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is a reflection of Christ. It's Christ-centeredness.
2: And that's why Gerard calls it a, a mimetic chain extending all the way back to Christ, that the church, and you need the church, and you need the apostles, and you need the fathers, and all the way up to Abuna today, that you need that mimetic chain that extends back, just as Saint Paul himself says, "Imitate me, even as I imitate Christ." Yeah. So those who imitated Saint Paul, the first apostle, the apostles, and then the apostolic fathers, and that's a chain of imitation that we have, and we're privileged to have in the church, that unfortunately other denominations, I mean, don't have because they've kind of made it individual and 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 centered on the individual, and it's me and my Bible, and then. It's just like you here's frugality. He's instructions. Go follow it. Well, without the imitation, you can't really grasp that inner life. You, of, can't, you
0: can't live it.
2: Yeah.
0: It'll always be external never, never be internalized. And it's interesting because that places love right at the center of everything. That's, that's the center. That's the gravitational, um, that's the center of gravity for Christianity. And that's what Jesus said all along. Um, And it took me a while to wrap my head around Gerard. But when I chained him with um, Athanasius and Basil and, you know, even the martyrdom of Polycarp, I found that he's drawing everything out from them. He's not coming up with something originally. He really made an objective observation and it was in line with the church fathers. Um,
2: It's quite genius. Yeah.
0: And I, I recommend him to everybody. I think he becomes a lens for reading the Bible, for reading the father's, Um, Not so much like you need him, but certainly make things a lot easier because he's building on that that ancient and authentic tradition. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned the mimetic chain, you know, the Copts very readily accept martyrdom. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not even a struggle, but that's because of the centuries. You know, when we walk Mm -hmm. in, we can actually imitate people who are no longer with us. Um, when we hear their stories, the human brain works like that. And when we walk into a church and we see these icons of martyrs and we hear the stories and we're moved by them and we admire them, that already sets up that chain. And it also comes to us through the priests and the bishops and the grandparents and the parents. Um, that's why there's, that's why the Copts are known for that, because it's centuries of that. It's almost like um, genetics, but it's passing through the spiritual life from one person to another and it can pass through um it can pass through the genetic cycle but it can also pass through uh, icons um, and that's very it's it's
2: it's such a simple theory but it's so complex at the same time yeah that's the beauty of it that it explains so much it has so much explanatory power yeah and, and like you said it's like catching the life from other people you don't sit there and study it but you just like how many of these saints that you know that were the product of the people that they surrounded themselves around? Yeah.
0: Or, uh, yeah. We'll never find a saint who was in isolation. Yeah. He, even St. Anthony, he got it from his church. <laughs> he walked into church. He spent time in church for so many years. And it was at that, that time period in his life when he had just become orphaned, that he, it started to really push him to go out. But if, if, if that was his first two times in church, you wouldn't have gone out in the wilderness, but it was, yeah. it was. So even with the monks, you always see that there are, you always can count who their spiritual fathers were, who, who had the impact on them uh, with the church fathers who lived in the cities, um, like St. Basil. You can trace the line back all the way up to origin, like origin, um, his student was Gregory the Wonderworker. Then Gregory the Wonderworker was the teacher and baptizer of Saint Macrina, and Saint Macrina was the father of Saint Basil the Elder. Or sorry, the mother of Saint Basil the Elder. And Saint Basil the Elder had these nine children. Um, five of whom are saints in our church, including Saint Basil, Saint Gregory. Um, but you see the chain go from 185 all the way to the 400, and that's just one example. Um, but even origins chain goes back. It goes back to his father who died as a martyr and his father in the Alexandrian church and so forth. Um, so we can even count it. Even with my own father confessor, I he can trace, we can trace back our um, pastoral line. Like he's my confessor. And when he goes to his confessor, all the way back to Mba Brahma Fayum. And that concludes our discussion on the Logos. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, DanielHannahWriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible, to spirituality, to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.